get together with those we love, with our families. And I know some of us maybe were not able. That's a little close. I'm just going to move back just a bit. Uh, I know that some of us maybe were not able to get together with family. But for those of us who were, I hope that we use the time well. And that leads me to consider uh, a book that I've recently been reading through by John Frame. I'm not sure if you are if you know of John Frame, he's a Reformed theologian, teaches at RTS in Orlando, and he wrote a book about 20, over 20 years ago called Simply Apologetics, and that book has recently been revised and, and republished, I think, in 2014, and he begins his book, this book on apologetics, with the key biblical passage for Christian apologetics. We think about uh, giving a defense, by the way, it it's always needs to be said that when you talk about apologetics, uh, we're not talking about apologizing for anything as Christians. Uh, it's from the, the Greek word apologia, and it simply means defense. And so we talk about apologetics, we talk about the defense of the Christian gospel, the defense of the Christian faith. And he begins this book, very first words of his book, this classic book on apologetics, he begins with this text. 1 Peter 3, 15 to 16. And those of you who've, who've delved in at all to, to apologetics would be familiar with this passage. 1 Peter 3, 15 to 16 says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Love the way that he puts that as, as a hope. We don't just give arguments from our brains. We give a defense of the wonderful, glorious hope that is truly ours in Christ Jesus. So I'll go on. He says, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good, your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And so, upholding the Christian faith out in the world, we learn from this key passage, is not just about what we say. It's not just about a logical, a, a series, a, a logical series of, of, uh, of statements, of propositions or principles that kind of cohere and therefore create a persuasive argument that people hear, listen to, and say, okay, great, I think Christianity makes sense. I'm going to be a Christian it's not just, as we think about upholding the Christian faith, it's not just what we say, but it is how we say it and how we live. These are important parts of what it means to be apologetic in the true sense. So how should we conduct ourselves out in the world among other people? Or let me put it this way, how should we be members of society? How should we function or conduct ourselves or behave as members of society or as citizens or as neighbors in a community or as members of a family, extended family, or as more generally believers among unbelievers? I think that's the question that we come to today in our text as we look at Titus chapter three. So you can go ahead and go there in your Bibles Titus chapter 3, and as we come to these first two verses of this chapter, in this book we've been going through now for over a couple of months, as we come to these first two verses, I think we get an answer to the question, how ought we to live? How ought we to speak? In what manner should we speak? And in what manner should we live as Christians who want to uphold the Christian 
gospel. And so Titus 3, 1 to 2. We're just going to do these first two verses today. So let's go ahead and read that. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. So this is Paul writing to Titus, who, whom he has sent to Crete to uh, establish the churches there in that, on that island. He says this to Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So let's pray over this and ask that God will, will, will convict us. Where there needs to be conviction, he'll encourage us. Where there needs to be encouragement, that he'll build us up in our most holy faith, that comfort our souls through affliction, and that he'll do his great work in all of us here today, every person. Whether today you're here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have this hope, and you know you have this hope, or you're not a believer, you don't have this hope in the resurrection of the dead through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which we sung about earlier. So regardless of that, we want to ask that the Holy Spirit will work in and among all of us. So let's pray. Our Father, what a monumental thing it is to gather together as your people. Lord, not just uh, doing church, or uh, coming to a building, or getting together with friends. But Lord, as you tell us in your word, going all the way back to the, the people of God gathered around Mount Sinai, the people of God gathered under the reading of your word by Ezra, the gathering of the people of God when Solomon dedicated the temple, and the gathering of the people of God throughout history, every place, every time. We just become very aware if we, are, if we understand your word and if we understand how you desire to be among us, present among us. We understand what a monumental thing it is to gather here today as a people to worship corporately. So Father, we ask that you will be with us and that you will weigh down heavy on our souls God, that you will make us to see what we need, that we need Christ. That we, more than all of the benefits of salvation through Christ, that we need Christ. Help us see him high and lifted up, even in the life that he's called us to, that the majesty of the Lord Jesus would be present in the life which he has given us through his spirit. Father, help us today to be faithful to you in our preaching and our listening and our praying and our singing and our partaking of communion. Would you work even among the kids as they gather over to the side here that, that your, your son, the Lord Jesus, would be lifted up among them and that they would see their need for Christ, that people are, are hopeless without Christ, helpless without Christ, headed to a, a fruitless end of a fruitless life apart from you dying in their sins. God, please be merciful to us today and make us to see our need for Christ, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.
So I want you to think about in the book of Titus, we have these, these two major, you can think of it as, as houses or trees. In chapter two, we've got, kind of, it's kind of what you see on the surface. When you look at something, when you look at our lives, it's what you see on the surface. You can think of it as a house on a foundation or a tree with roots down underneath. And so when we came to Titus chapter two, verses one to 10, we get the house or the tree. We get what we see. We get the kind of life that we are meant to live. Those first 10 verses of chapter two of Titus tell us that we are to act a certain way. We are to behave a certain way and to cultivate certain dispositions of our hearts. And so we, we saw in chapter two, verse two, older men, and then we go down, older women, younger women, younger men, bond servants, all different kinds of people. And there in those 10 verses, the focus is on behavior or conduct, obviously deriving from a heart that is turned towards God. And here in chapter three, these first two verses, we get something very similar. We get a conduct passage telling us what we are to do, how we ought to live. And in both of these cases, one of the things that's so amazing about this book of Titus is so clear, crystal clear and explicit, is that in both cases, this, this house is clearly on a foundation. This tree is clearly put there with roots underneath it. And so in chapter two, the first 10 verses, we get how we, are, how we ought to live. And then verses 11 to 14, we get the foundation or the root system for that kind of life. And we have that over here on this wall for the grace of God has appeared and so on and so forth in chapter two, verses 11 to 14. The same thing, the very same thing happens in this chapter. In Titus chapter three, we get these opening two verses instead of 10 verses. Here we only have two, which tell us how we ought to conduct ourselves out among people in the world as citizens and as neighbors and so forth. And then we get starting in verse three, for we ourselves were once foolish and so on and so forth. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior. And so we get a passage that gives us a, a gracious or a gospel foundation to a way of life. Chapter two, verses one to 10, a way of life, a way of being and conducting ourselves. Chapter three, verses one to two, a way of life, a way of behaving, a way of conducting ourselves. Both of these clearly giving, given a gospel gracious foundation. And so that's what we come to today. So next week, we will start looking at this over here, this gospel foundation to the passage that we come to today. So just anticipate having the reason for this kind of life as we begin to look at it next week. So the title for the sermon today is A Gospel Respect. A Gospel Respect. Showing respect, courtesy, consideration for other people. And of course, doing this on the basis of the gospel. And we'll talk more about that next week, as I said before. So Paul begins by telling Titus to remind them. You see this at the beginning of verse one of chapter three. Remind them, which means this. Everything that we're going to look at in these two verses of chapter three, all of this was already knowledge among the Christians. They knew it already. It was already in their minds and they were simply to be reminded of this, which means that all of this behavior material and all of this how to function as a citizen material that we're gonna look at today comes with the gospel. When a, when a person would have accepted Christ, they would have come very quickly to understand that this is the way of life that they ought to live. And so this is not new material. This is not new stuff for them to cover and to acquire. This is old stuff, 
old material that, that, that needs to be reiterated for them. And so here's what I think we are instructed to, uh, to be as, as Christians, as we find in chapter three, verses one to two. We are instructed to be those who are honoring, those who are helpful, those who are harmless, and those who are humble. These, I think, are the four things that we find in these verses. So let's go to the first. We are to be those who are honoring. Look at the first part of verse one. Remind them what? To be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. The main idea that I want you to see here is that Christians are to be characterized as those who honor authority particularly political authority, the government, the law of the land. These are important to Christians and they should be not only a focus for Christians, but something that Christians honor or people that Christians honor hold up in high esteem, reverence, hold up in high regard. In general, this means, as we see here in our text, that we submit or line up underneath those who are over us. We, we saw this with children. We saw this with, with the household, with wives and children. And the ways in which, as we talked uh, for, for quite a while about the relationship between a wife and her husband. The relationship between children and parents. And we saw there this idea of submission. And how God has worked this into the created order. And at the top of all of this is submission to those rulers and authorities who are placed over us politically speaking. And so it's not just to submit to them or line up underneath them, but he also says here that we are in particular to obey, to abide by the law, to do what is asked of us. And if we want to understand a little bit more about what's going on here, as, as Paul very quickly makes mention of this and then moves on, we have to go to a couple of other key passages that deal with this subject of submitting to governments, submitting to political Authorities, And so we go to Romans 13, 1. This is a key passage. And it says this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. And then Paul goes on to say in this very same passage. Show honor to whom honor is due. Therefore, connecting the idea of honor to this idea of submission. And then in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 14, he says this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. By the way, that's a very general idea. It's across the board. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And Peter goes on to say, honor the emperor. So in both of these passages that deal with subjection to rulers and authorities, he has this idea of honoring those who are in charge or those who, whom God has placed over us. Now we know as Christians that there is one exception to this rule. There's one exception to this submission, this obedience and that is that we obey God before we obey men. 
And so we, we read in the opening chapters of Acts that the Jesus movement is just exploding and spreading. The first day of, of Pentecost, we have, we have Peter preaching to all of those people. 3,000 people are converted, and the apostles begin to go around telling everybody about Jesus. And people are getting saved. People's hearts are being changed. And there's this incredible movement that's taking place. And of course, the, the religious leaders, those who are placed over the people of Israel, particularly there in Jerusalem, are quite unhappy with what's going on. And so they call in Peter and some of the other disciples and they say to them, you are not to preach in that name. You are not to speak of this Jesus anymore. Quit doing that. And what Peter says, I think, is very instructive for us as we think about how to apply a passage like this. Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. Now notice this, Peter, the one who said we must obey God rather than men, is the same Peter who wrote what I just read. The same Peter who said, but we must obey men. We must obey God rather than men, but we must also obey men. So how do we go about doing this? And by the way, let me just make this point in case we would be tempted to think, but man, our government's messed up. Or any, any people who would think, you know, well, this, this would apply if you had a, a perfect utopian kind of political institution at the head of your country. What we need to remember is the context in which Peter and Paul are writing the, this material. This is a debauched, hostile empire. This is not a place, if you go to Pompeii and you look at the paintings on the baths there, this is a debauched I haven't been there, but I've seen the History Channel on it, and you maybe have been there. But you go and you see these, these paintings, they're, they're debauched. This is a very highly immoral society. If you read about some of the things sexually that the emperors did, even with their own family members, then you would see that this is a highly immoral society. The emperors themselves killing their own family members, taking over power, Read about Caligula, read about Nero, read about Tiberius and Claudius, read about these emperors in the first century who are in charge during this period of time in which Paul is writing. Even to Rome itself, the place where these emperors hold their authority most expressly. And Peter and Paul both are saying, even to Christians in this environment, they're saying, obey, submit to these rulers, these authorities, who are entirely immoral and who are hostile to the Christian faith. So this is a very important point because we would be tempted to think, well, this applies not to, uh, it applied in that administration, but not this administration. Or it applied in, in that particular county, not in this county. It applies over in that state, but not in this state. It applies to all Christians at all times in every single place. So there are a few things, I think, as we, as we think about how this works itself out in practice, there are a few things that I think we need to do, a few things to, to think about as we think about how, how we do this. First, we need to recognize that this authority is from God. And we read this in Romans. He says that it's instituted or appointed by God. And in fact, Paul calls these individuals who, by the way, these emperors who don't know God, who aren't Christians, 
many of whom aren't just, they're not good men. Even among the Roman emperors, Marcus Aurelius was known as, as sort of a, a lofty ethical man, and he persecuted the Christians in the late second century in Lyon, France. You read about that persecution and how horrific it was, and he was related to that. He was behind that ultimately. This is one of the emperors that is held up as being this great ethical, moral figure. But we recognize that all of these are instituted or appointed by God and called by Paul servants of God, even though they don't know him. They are ministers of God's wrath. Now hear this. This is something we don't often consider. We think about God's wrath. We think about Christ returning in the passages that talk about when Christ returns, he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. He's going to separate those who, who know him and those who do not we learn in the scriptures about a place called hell that, that people who die in their sins go there, with the, their soul goes there, and they await the resurrection of the body. And then at the end of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, it says that the, the, everyone who has died will be raised from the dust of the earth, that those who, who are of God will, will inherit eternal life, and those who are not will be judged by God in their bodies one day before God. We recognize God's wrath in this sense. But we oftentimes don't think about how God exercises his wrath in this life. How does he do that? I mean, we learn in Romans 18, the wrath of God abides against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God is here abiding with us. And one of the ways we learn from Romans 13 that God exercises his wrath is through authorities, through rulers, through those who are in charge over us. In fact, they are a gift to humanity. We know, based on the scriptures, that the human heart is so wicked, so twisted, so corrupt, that given the absence of the rule of law, given the absence of strong rulers and authorities, that sin would just run rampant across the land. And here's how we know this. Think about this for a moment. What is one of the first things that happens when there's a natural disaster or a breakdown of police order in an area? What is one of the first things that you often hear about? Looting. We always hear about that. People just breaking into shops, stealing TVs, trying to get away with guns and whatever else they can find in stores. This is just a little picture of what would happen if there was a, were an absence of all rulers and authorities. But God, by his grace, and you have to see this, by his common mercy and grace toward humanity, has instituted and appointed rulers and authorities to check man's sinful heart so that there is a rule of law and there is the exercising of God's wrath towards sinners when they break the law. And that is exactly what's in view as Paul articulates it in Romans 13. So this authority, here's my point, is from God. And we know this as Jesus stands before Pilate. Jesus goes to Pilate and Pilate's so filled with himself, he thinks that he, uh, he has authority over Jesus. And he tells Jesus, do you not know that I have authority either to release you or to crucify you? And Jesus says, you have no authority. That was not given to you from above. All rulership, all authority on this plane of existence here on earth is given from God. It is all his. So we, we must recognize that as we think about bad leaders, bad authorities who are placed over us. We must also recognize that we do this for 
God. Peter says, for the Lord's sake. And Peter goes on to say in verse 15 that our subjection to authority will put to silence the ignorance of foolish people who speak against the Christian faith. In other words, rulers may hate Christians so much, but when they go to, to bring charges against them and accusations against them and throw them in jail, they're like, uh, Christian. That's all they can say. That's all they can say because there is no charge or accusation against them in terms of the law, in terms of their insubordination. And so we do this as an act to God as worship and to declare his glory among people as a witness to who he is and his reality. So how do, what does this look like in practice? Well, one of the ways that this gets applied in the New Testament is specifically with regard to taxes. We hate taxes. Everybody dislikes taxes because that's somebody coming along taking the money that you earned and made and want to spend and, and do with what you please. But the government takes our money and has been doing so since the beginning. And, and that's, this is one of the reasons why throughout the New Testament, whether it's Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, as he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's or give to Caesar what is his, as he's got the, the face of the Caesar on the coin. But also Paul says in Romans 13, pay to everyone who's owed. To those who are owed taxes and money, pay taxes and money. And I just want to make this application for us that obedience to this instruction that we find today in the scripture happens in the little things. It happens in those little moments where you're tempted to say, mm, I'm going to fudge that number a little bit. I, I don't know that I really have to record that because, uh, you know, I wasn't, no one really knows I got that. So I don't really need to record that. I don't really need to do this because no one else follows that law or no one else is worried about obeying the government in that way. This is where Christians are different because we always do it before the face of God. We live always before the eyes of the Lord. We do it for his sake. So obedience to this shows up in the little things so that if the Christian is audited, so to speak, literally or in other ways, that the state can burrow down or drill down as far as they need to, and they're going to find above reproach. They're going to find blameless. They're not going to find a basis for accusation for the glory of God. That's why we pay our taxes, and that's why we obey the law. Another thing I'll say here is that we need to understand that this is an important part of Christian discipleship. Oftentimes we think about, you know, the Christian life and there's like a, a handful of things we tend to think about. What does it look like to live the Christian life? Well, okay, so I read my Bible this morning, check. I prayed and I prayed throughout the day, check. I've told some people about Jesus recently at work, check. I've done this, I've done that. You've got these little things, you know, that constitute the Christian life. And you're always sort of either feeling good about yourself because you're doing some of those things or you're not feeling good about yourself because you're not doing those things. By the way, it's a terrible way to view the Christian life. But we do it. That's how we tend to think about it. But one of the things I want you to see is that as if you're going to put some things on that list, okay, if you're gonna have a list like that, this needs to be on there. How we relate to the government. How we relate to those who are over us. And by the way, this is central to child raising. We are teaching our children, when we teach them to obey us, we are teaching them to obey rulers 
and authorities and ultimately the ruler, the king of kings and the Lord of lords who governs the universe. We are teaching them what it means to live in a, in a universe in which there are authorities and there is an ultimate authority to whom they must give account. So we should raise our children to obey authorities, to respect police, to respect police and those who are over us, explicitly teaching them that. Not just hoping they get it at some point, but teaching them that that's who we respect. So first, we are to be those who are honoring. Secondly, we are, we are to be those who are helpful. Look at the end of verse one. Remind them, he goes on to say, to be ready for every good work. To be ready for every good work. One of the main themes from Romans 13 and 1 Peter that we just looked at is the divinely appointed role of authorities to punish wrongdoing, which we just talked about. So 1 Peter 2.14 says to punish those who do evil. That's what rulers and authorities are to do. As I said before, to punish those who do evil. In Romans 13, rulers are said to be a terror to bad conduct. Think about that. That you go to break the law and you were supposed to say, I'm not doing that because then this will happen to me. This will happen to me if I do that. By the way, that tells us something too about how we raise our children. There, there should be a certain sense there of I'm not doing that because if I do that, this is going to happen. And that's the way that authority works in the world. And so rulers are a terror to bad conduct. They carry out God's wrath on those who do evil. But rather than simply avoiding what is wrong, what is against the law, what is against authority, Christians are to be those who are ready for every good work. So it's tempting to think, okay, so I avoid doing the bad, but it's not just about making sure you obey the law and you avoid not breaking the law. It's about what you do. It's not just a negative command. There's not just a negative side to it, what you avoid, but it's also what you actually do. And he says here to be ready for every good work. Essentially, this is all kinds of good at all times. Remember those natural disasters that I mentioned? One of the things, by God's grace, that we oftentimes see is when there are natural disasters in the world, who goes and helps? Sometimes more than anyone else, God's people, Christians. Go and give money and give time and give energy and make sacrifices to help those people in need. And there's a reason for that, by the way. It's not just because we, we just think, oh, well, there we go. We gotta, we're we're going to do this. It is because this is the kind of people we're called to be in our communities, in our neighborhoods, the kind of people that we're called to be in our country. This is the kind of people that we are called to be everywhere, all kinds of good at all times. So Galatians 6.10 says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, to everyone. And Titus 3.14, later in this book, we find these words, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need, to be helpful, specifically where there is much need. And then in 1 Timothy 6.18, we are told to be generous and ready to share. 
This is the kind of people that we are to be as Christians. So this raises the question, I think, how can we be ready or prepared? Because we're said here not to just do good works, but to be ready for every good work. So how is it that we as Christians can be ready or prepared for good works? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you hear this sermon this morning and you walk out of here and you say, okay, good works. I'm gonna do lots of good works. That's not your starting point. Your starting point, I think, should be found in two main places that we find from the scriptures. The first is that we are equipped for every good work by the inspired word of God. We are told that in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that it is through the scriptures which are profitable, it is through the scriptures that we become equipped for every good work. So how do we go out of here? How do we go out of this building? How do we leave our gatherings together as believers after we've heard the word of God? We talk about James, be, hearers of the, be, be doers of the word and not hearers only. How do we go about doing that? And the answer to the question is that we have to be ready. How do we get to a point where we're ready or prepared? And the answer is that we have to be in the scriptures. I want you to think about it this way. When we are in the Bible, we are being frequently refueled for this helpful kind of life. We're told that explicitly in 2 Timothy. That we spend time in the Bible, we are being equipped, we're being, a tra- we're being trained, we're being made ready so that when the time comes for an urgent need or when the time comes for someone to be helped, that we prove to be helpful. We prove to be helpful for the glory of God. So that's the first way. You leave here this morning and you think, okay, how can I be more about good works? How can I be a more helpful person to those I know, to those that God puts me around? And that's the first answer. The second answer is we are equipped for good works by regular confession and repentance. Where am I getting that at? 2 Timothy 2.21 says this, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, hear this, He will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house. Years ago, I can remember preaching a sermon where I brought up this passage. And you know what what kind of hits me hard as I read this is you realize you can be useless to the master? Have you ever thought about that? It's true. We read that as, as we open up Second, Second Peter in the first chapter. He says, so that you will not be fruitless. He wants the readers to be fruitful in the Christian life. And so he tells them how they are to go about cultivating a kind of life that will lead to, uh, to fruitfulness, lead to a life that's, that's busy doing good works for other people for the glory of God. Which means that we can sit here every single Sunday and listen to preaching Listen to podcasts of whomever throughout the week. Come to our gospel community group. Go about the Christian life and actually be useless in the hand of the master. In 1 John, he says that we are to abide in him so that when he appears, we will not be ashamed before him at his coming. You imagine that? You imagine that when the Lord Jesus appears and we see that all this stuff, we see that it is in fact true. Right now we live by faith, not by sight. One day we're going to live by sight. We're going to see Jesus, the risen, glorified Christ, who 2,000 years ago literally came out of the tomb and was raised from the dead and who ascended into heaven. And his disciples said, wow. And they went around preaching about this. 2,000 years later, we still have the Christian faith everywhere at every time it's been present. 
The gates of hell have not prevailed against the church. And can you imagine when this Lord Jesus comes back, being ashamed before him? Now, there's a, there's a real sense in which we will all be ashamed, <laughs> right? In the sense that I mean, the glory of Christ will so over, overpower all of our, our impurities and all of our sinfulness and all of our imperfection, all of our weakness. But there is a sense in which on that day, you can truly be ashamed. And here's how that will happen to you, Christian, if you're useless now. And here's how that will happen. If you don't, cleanse yourself of what is dishonorable. Confession and repentance, in addition to time in the scriptures, confession and repentance are essential if we are to be useful in the hand of the master, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So we are to be those who are honoring, we are to be those who are helpful. Thirdly, we are to be those who are harmless. Look at the beginning of verse two. Verse two, remind them, dot, 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 to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling. We see that at the beginning of verse two. It is clear from the words no one that Paul is thinking beyond just the rulers and authorities mentioned in verse one. So this this passage, one one commentator said that the, the lines are a little blurred in these two verses between whether at the beginning Paul is telling Titus, how believers are to relate to rulers and authorities, and then he seems to kind of, kind of grow out to everybody within the community, everyone whom they would live around, everyone who perhaps is an unbeliever, who is an unbeliever. But I think it is important for us to consider how we speak about political officials in particular. So this passage is not just dealing with rulers and authorities, But I think that here, there's a pretty important application for us as we think about how we speak about our officials and those who rule over us. Mayors, governors, congressmen, senators, presidents, and so forth. Reflecting on our submission to rulers and authorities, Brian Chappell, whom I've quoted a number of times, his commentary on Titus is excellent. He writes this. How we vote... The ethics we use in political debate and action, the laws we obey, the legislation we seek, and the language we use to discuss governmental issues and officials at church, at work, and around the dinner table, all of these areas of life are affected by Paul's instruction to be submissive to rulers and authorities. And I want to draw your attention to two things in this quote in particular. One, the ethics we use in political debate. Now my, my assumption this, this soon after the election is that maybe over Thanksgiving, you had some political debate. Talked with a few people who, uh, who've had some, maybe perhaps fairly heated political debate. And the question is not what side we take in these debates. The question is, what is the Christian ethic of our debating? How do we as Christians think about the way we speak and the way we speak about individuals? He also says, he also, uh, another phrase I want to draw your attention to here is the language we use to discuss government officials, governmental officials. How do we speak about those who are elected or appointed over us? Do we speak about them with no honor? Do we speak evil of them? I think we do. 
I think we do very often, of all of them. When they don't do what we would like them to do, when it's not the person we voted for, when it's not the person who represents the party that we prefer, we speak evil of them. And sometimes, even on national television, Christians who are well-known publicly and loudly disobey this very scripture. But we don't talk about that because remember it goes back, we're praying, we're reading the Bible, telling people about Jesus, we're doing those things. This is irrelevant, right? Or, you know, it's maybe peripheral or secondary or something. No, it's just as essential. It's here. And it's just as, we'll see next week, important from the perspective of the gospel. It is ever bit as much, every bit as much, something that flows out of the gospel as all of those other things that I mentioned. So why is this challenging? Because this is challenging. I mean, if you look at your life in the last, uh, I'll go back 16 years. <laughs> There's a reason for that. I'll go back 16 years. So you look at your life of the last two presidential administrations, and you look at your life even now as you've been, as you've been talking about uh, the, this election and individuals who are running, not only for the presidency, but also for other offices. Why is it challenging for us as Christians, as we think about our own foul language about individuals, as we think about how we've spoken about these people, why is it challenging for us not to do this? And the reason is twofold. As American Christians, we have this sense that America is somehow distinct from everywhere else in the world. It's somehow a place where Christianity should dominate where Christianity is so integral to all of our laws and to all of our history that we are a Christian nation, that this is really a theocracy. But that fails to, to do justice to the fact that we are aliens and pilgrims in the world. There's never going to be a country in which Christians feel entirely at home because Christians only have one monarch, Christ himself, who will one day reign, I believe, on the earth over his kingdom but the reason that this is so challenging for us is because we see immorality and hostility among political figures. We see political figures who, who either do things we believe to be immoral or support policies that we believe to be immoral, or we see them doing things that are either overtly or implicitly hostile to Christians. And so it's almost as though this is the way our reasoning works. We see leaders, rulers and authorities over us who we're supposed to honor and to respect and not to speak evil against, we see them doing these immoral things, supporting these immoral things, and we see them hostile to Christians. By the way, no more hostile than would have been the case in the first century when Paul and Peter wrote these sorts of things. We see this and we think, okay, I have a right to speak evil of this person. Because of this thing, we justify the way we speak about our leaders and our rulers because we just simply disagree with them or we see their immorality or, or we see their godless policies or we see their hatred of Christians even. And what I would say based on this scripture is that we do not have a right to speak about them in that way. To demean them, to denigrate them, to malign them or slander them, to curse them, to treat them with contempt. All of that is present as we think about this word. The, the Greek word is, is blaspheme, to speak ill, evil of these people. 
So we are those who avoid doing harm with our speech, with our tongues, James 3. But we are also those who avoid creating conflict. We are told here to be peaceable, to avoid quarreling. And in Romans 12, 14, Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Live peaceably with all people, even those who hate Christians. Live peaceably with them. Even those whose lives, lifestyles and whose viewpoints are, are repellent to the Christian gospel, live peaceably with those people. Going back to the title for the sermon, live respectfully. Live in a courteous way with those individuals. Christians are not to be controversy seekers. Are you a controversy seeker? Do you enjoy just going back and forth and arguing? Think about how you relate to friends, family members, coworkers who don't know the Lord. Are you just constantly thinking, ah, I've got a new argument for them. I've got this thing I'm gonna say and they're not gonna be able to refute it and they're gonna be stuck. Is that how we think as we, as we go to work, as we drive to work in the morning? Or is that how we think as we're going to meet with family over a holiday break together? Is that what we think as we engage in this discussion? We are not to be those who are controversial controversial. We're not to be those who are quarreling. We are not to be those who are ready for a fight. We are to be peaceable. Finally, as we finish up this morning, we are to be those who are humble, honoring, helpful, harmless. And as we finish today, we are those who ought to be humble. Look at the end of verse two. Remind them to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This first word translated gentle can also be rendered yielding, kind, courteous. It is the opposite of being contentious. Do you think about that? Ready for a fight? Always sort of drawing some controversy and drawing conflict wherever you may go, to whomever you may speak? This is not the way we as Christians ought to be. Ready for a fight? Ready for an argument? No, gentle. The idea of gentle captures the fact that this word is frequently placed in contrast to severity in ancient literature. So you think about the meaning of this word, the Greek word, which is translated here as gentle. It is, it is kind of the opposite of severity. Are we severe in the tone that we use, in the way that we speak as we engage with unbelievers about their lifestyles, about their choices, about their preferences, about their political views? How do we speak to them, we are told here to be gentle. The second idea translated courtesy in the ESV can also be rendered as gentleness. This is the same word used for the fruit of the spirit. One of the, the fruits of the spirit is to be gentle, is gentleness. It can also be translated humility, considerateness, or meekness. This is used to describe our Lord Jesus. As he comes in, Matthew 21, five, it says this, as he comes into uh, Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. This word, humble, meek, gentle, and mounted on a donkey. This is the same word that we find in our passage used in Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. By the way, it's not those who charge ahead and want to take control of land, want to, to rule over things, who will one day rule. It's the meek who will one day rule with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's going on there in Matthew 5. 
A working definition is the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. How much of the discussion that we have, I just want to challenge us this morning with this question. How much, if we look at our hearts, of the political discussion that we have is really about our own pride, is really about being right, is really about making sure that our point is made and that we are heard, and how much of it is really about the glory of God. Because we're told here what brings glory to God. And what brings glory to God is that we are gentle, not severe, and that we are humble, courteous, meek, like our Savior. So whether it regards our view of ourselves or our view of others, these ideas can essentially be summed up under the idea of humility. Both of them are characteristics of Jesus. And in fact, these two words that we find in this last, at the end of this, this second verse, are found of Jesus in Second. Corinthians 10, 21, the meekness and gentleness of Christ. We are to be as Jesus. We, we already know that. But here's the thing. We oftentimes say, be like Jesus, and that means nothing. It's just some general idea. But by the power, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to be like Jesus. We are to be conformed day by day into his likeness. And part of what that means is what we find in our text today, that we are gentle, meek, considerate, humble in how we relate to other people. One major idea that I don't want you to miss as we finish up this morning is this last clause, and it says, showing all gentleness to all men. Here's what I want to say. Not even the vilest, most frustrating, annoying sinner is excluded from this. No matter what your views, you're a Christian. I'm a Christian. This is who we are by the grace of God. But remember, this characteristic and every other characteristic that we've discussed today, for that matter, this respectful and courteous way of life is from the Spirit. And that's where pride gets checked. All of this is from the Spirit, not from ourselves, And that leads us, as we close, to read this passage that we're going to be in next week, which is up here on the wall. There's a little bit of a glare, so I'm going to read it here from my Bible. But you're welcome to look over there or read it out of your Bible. So this is where we're headed as we think about the Spirit giving this gentleness, giving this meekness, giving us all these characteristics that we need desperately as we relate to unsaved neighbors, unsaved fellow citizens, unsaved coworkers, unsaved family members, as we talk to them about politics and life and morals and everything else. We need the Holy Spirit, and it's only the Holy Spirit who gives it to us. Let's look at, starting at verse three. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's who you were, Christian. That's who I was. Isn't that amazing? That's who I was. But, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, 